0: Welcome to the Eat, Train, Prosper podcast where we provide you sustainable training principles for strength and building muscle, effective nutrition practices for improving and maintaining a lean physique, and practical lifestyle habits for becoming a champion of your own health, both inside and out. Hosted by Aaron Straker and Brian Borstein. Welcome back to another episode of the Eat, Train, Prosper podcast. Today we'll just be Brian and myself and we are going to have a little bit of a larger discussion around tonnage. Uh, in terms of hypertrophy. And then we're also going to talk about lifting in working uh, rep range and when would make the best sense for you to increase weight within your rep range, knowing that that might bring you back to the lower end set of the rep range or also pushing a little bit higher outside the rep range at your current working weight. But before we dive deep on both of those topics, Brian, what do you have going on?
1: Oh man, you know, life continues to roll. Um, Got mom on babysitting duty these days, so that's been cool. She's really, really good, and I think overall this has been a, a massive win to not have the nanny and instead have grandma. So, so everything's good there. Um, let's see. Training has kind of fallen into a two day on, one day off. Um, it's interesting. I just keep kind of moving into slightly, slightly lower, lower volumes due to compromising frequency. Um, so as a recap, it was a three times a week full body program where I was hitting upper and lower each three times a week. So essentially six sessions a week. And then that had to switch to upper uh, lower due to life circumstances. And now it's still upper lower, but I now just decided I'm no longer going to do like a upper, lower, upper all in a row. I'm just going to go like upper, lower, rest, upper, lower, rest. Um, and this has been awesome. So I don't know. It's uh, it's actually kind of relevant to some of our discussion today um, around, you know, volume and training and how important volume is and how that relates to tonnage and stuff like that. But I'm just finding, you know, the more that I decrease uh volume over the last year or so things have just kind of gotten better for me so it's all very interesting and i think it also plays into a little of the discussion we had with dave and abel if y'all missed that you can go back and check that one out and we discussed kind of how we all have you know pulled back a little bit on the volume that we've done so um that's where i'm at i uh still am dealing with a slight strain in my lower glute or upper hamstring i'm not really sure uh what's going on it's It got to like a eight out of ten healing and then it just kind of stopped getting better. so what I've been doing is implementing this leg curl to r d l superset so that I'm able to get some hip hinging in without having to feel like I need to hip hinge three hundred and fifty to four hundred pounds or something crazy like that um so I'm now going leg curl directly into r d l and uh this past week yesterday I did. 275 on the RDL which was the best stimulus I've felt from RDLs in a while. So I think I'm going to stick with this pre-exhaust superset sequence for at least a few more weeks. See how my hamstring does if it heals and um just continue kind of getting the benefits of instituting pre-exhaust which is something that I haven't really done in my training in any sort of structured manner for a number of years now. Um mentioned to Aaron before the the podcast how my stomach's been a little weird the last few days and kind of not unexpectedly my body weight has kind of increased as well due to probably water retention and stuff like that so um what was you know hanging out at like 194 195 ish is now like 196 197 and just this morning now that i'm feeling better it just dropped like right back down to 194 so literally like overnight i'm like oh my stomach doesn't hurt anymore this is amazing and i step on the scale and like three pounds are gone and i don't know where it went it just like disappeared so um so hanging out at 194 and uh finally feeling better and, uh, yeah, what's going on in your world, dude.
0: Uh, before we, before I take over with that, any uh, two questions I want to ask you. So anything new with, I know you were briefly, We would talk about the specialization cycles or any kind of new upcoming cycles on any of the, uh, other programming. You have uh, on?
1: So, yeah. Um, well on, uh, the Paragon program we're we're starting a, um, a hybrid Olympic lifting, bodybuilding style program for the spring. So we're looking to release that. I think the first week is April 5th.
0: So that would be like a brand new offering, like a different ones. Yeah. It won't
1: be a repeating cycle. So it's not like we'll finish this and then there'll be like another 15 week cycle after that or whatever. It'll just be a one specialization cycle of sorts. That's focused on Olympic lifting three days a week. Um, So we'll like snatch on Mondays. We'll jerk on uh I think Thursdays and clean on Fridays or Saturdays. Um so that'll be cool and then combined with like hypertrophy and bodybuilding style training. So I know people should be into that. It'll be set up like 4 weeks on, deload, 4 weeks on, deload, 4 weeks on, deload. Um like most of the awesome. cycles that I write. And uh yeah, it should be unique and cool. So if anyone's looking to to do a little only lifting in the spring, um definitely check that out.
0: Cool. The other question I had for you mentioning, uh, the, the hip hinging. So when you program um, personally, right. Uh, for yourself, do you typically use, um, like an RDL or an, uh, stiff legged deadlift for your hip hinging, or are you often using like a good morning or more of a backloaded, um, one as well
1: too. Um, so I, I don't do conventional deadlifts really. I actually haven't done a conventional deadlift in over two years now. Um, but I am kind of intrigued by the notion of putting them back in potentially in like a strength oriented phase. So I haven't done a strength oriented phase again in probably two years. Um, and I'm talking like, you know, below the hypertrophy rep ranges. So maybe hanging out in like the two to six rep range for a lot of the main lifts. Um, and that's just something that I've thought about because I just haven't done it for so long. And, uh, and I do believe that strength is important. Um, and given it's something I haven't done for a while, I think that I would see some adaptations pretty quickly in it too, which could also be motivating. So something I kind of have in the back of my mind for my own training. Um, but yeah, usually I do stick with an RDL or a stiff leg deadlift. And then I've kind of, to be completely honest, I've ignored the good morning. Um, and the reason I've ignored it is because I'm not good at it. Um, and so it's one of those things where when people ask me like, you know, should i do it and my answer is like well if you're not good at it you probably should get better at it right and i didn't take my own advice um and then i was kind of reminded of i was reading some old literature that i have from a couple of years ago and i was reminded of a conversation that i had with a guy and he mentioned something along the lines of like the good morning teaches you how to hip hinge or makes your hip hinge perfect or something along those lines like it takes a good hip hinge and it makes it a great hip hinge and I was reminded of that, and and I, and I also thought about how the fact that maybe because I'm not great at good mornings, maybe that's a problem in my hip hinge in general. And if I did get better at good mornings, that it would enhance my stiff-legged deadlift and my RDL. So um, I actually ended up putting it in my program about four weeks ago, but to keep my fragile ego in check, I uh, – I do it second. So I do it uh, on actually third. So I do split squats first, then I do leg curls. And then when I'm completely jacked up, I throw in one working set of good mornings. And it has been honestly, just in the month I've done it, a huge game changer. And I've noticed that it enhances my RDL or stiff legged deadlift just in the short amount of time I've done it. And what I've kind of realized is that it's because of where the load sits on your back. Whether it's low bar or high bar doesn't really matter. It's sitting on your frame, on your torso. So if there is any deviation in proper hip hinging, you know it immediately. You get immediate feedback that something isn't right because that bar side starts to move in a way that you don't want it to move on your back. Um, whereas with an RDL or a stiff leg deadlift because it hangs from your arms, you don't get immediate feedback on it. Um, so for anyone that, that is struggling with hip hinging, uh, my suggestion would be try the good morning and see how it is for you. Cause I'm excited to continue working it now because I think I've figured it out. And while I'm still not strong at it, I've seen that it has benefit and that's kind of exciting.
0: Yeah. The reason I asked is because it's, it's always funny because we have so many similarities. I don't like it. I, and the real reason I don't like the, the, like a good morning hip hinge is because I suck at it. It's much more difficult for me to find the correct position as opposed to like an RDL or a stiff legged deadlift. Um, and again, it's because of that, that loading, um, the, where you, where you load it. So the next question I did have for you before we go in is when you are performing the good morning now, are you doing it with your SSB or with a straight barbell?
1: I'm doing it with the SSB, which I actually think, puts it in a more high bar position, which makes the good morning even more challenging. Um, And I almost always recommend people do good mornings with a low bar position because just those like two inches of putting that bar closer to your midline makes a huge difference in your ability to hip hinge properly. Um, But I made the decision to use the SSB because I'm even worse at it. And I feel like if I can master or even improve my hip hinging through doing it in that manner that when eventually I shift to a low bar good morning, I should be able to actually match what my ego believes I can do and lift more weight in like a proper hip hinge pattern.
0: Yeah. Interesting. The, the few times, you know, that I do do it or when I was, I preferred the SSB. I just felt that it Removed complexity by just not having to figure out, okay, I'm going to put my hands Mm. here, here, here. It was just like, everything was closer and it helped me kind of just by having my hands in a more neutral position, I guess I I should say helped me with just like focusing on bracing my core and stuff. The last question I do have for you on (laughs) hip hinging, sorry to go down this kind of tangent what are your thoughts around like fixed position hip hinging, like the 45 degree angle, like back extension type, um, you know, piece of machinery that will, you'll find in like a traditional Globo gym or something. Yeah. I like it. Do you find that? Okay. I was going to say, do you find that by like kind of removing one part of the equation or basically fixating a part of the equation, meaning you don't have, you, you know, you're locking your basically quads and heels and stuff into place and there's no Wavering there that it allows you to focus on finding the position easier or just deep removing complication from it
1: Yeah, that's probably the primary reason that I like it um, And for just variation to again kind of improve Your mind muscle connection with those areas um, And i've always found that when i've done like a dedicated period of time where i'm actually trying to work progressive overload into like a hip extension type movement that um that i've seen significant benefit from that when i transition back to like uh an rdl or stiff-legged deadlift type movement. So, no, i'm a huge fan of it. I like it in a lot of different varieties too. I like it um i like it just standard where you only go to the point where your hip is in extension. Um and then i also like it sometimes where you even go into hyperextension and you almost kind of go back into like a partial ghr where you Take a little bit of the glute and bring it back toward the ankle that's fixated in position. Um, And I actually, maybe to retract that, I don't necessarily like the hyperextension of the back piece as much as I like taking that neutral hip position, but taking the whole body back. Um, I'll link two videos in the show notes below so that you guys can, can see what I'm talking about when I mean the like partial GHR, cause it can be confusing and to try to try to talk about it, but I'll link a video, what I'm talking about. And so seeing just, just taking it up to neutral and then taking it slightly past neutral so that the butt gets closer to the ankles adds a little bit of a curling element. So you get a little bit, I think different hamstring stimulus than you would just going to neutral.
0: I agree with those. Um, it's a little interesting aside going into hip hinging. And I think kind of part of the reason we both are, you know, historically not great at it stemming from like our, our CrossFit days. I remember both of us had that very kind of, you know, it was like a common adaptation you would find in CrossFitters who didn't know how to hip hinge properly is your spinal erectors would be like massively overdeveloped. And I know we both had that um, issue. So it's something kind of interesting that us, you know, still, you know, years later, working on perfecting and having our caveats. Have
1: you noticed any shrinking of your spinal erectors at all since you stopped lifting that way?
0: I think so just because I'm just not doing a lot of pulling off the ground anymore, you know, and or, you know, the squatting and stuff I am doing, you know, for, for any of the listeners who didn't catch any of the kind of earlier episodes, you know, I both had or both of us had problems with like, shifting in the squat to where we'd be in a more like a mechanically advantageous position. And that's why we had trouble with, you know, getting the quad growth we were after. So I basically removed parts of these things to basically not allow myself to fall back into those positions. So I think they probably have, you know, at, I don't want to say like atrophy, but, you know, probably atrophied somewhat just from not using them so much anymore.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I was actually just thinking about that recently because it was actually in the context of the fact that I'm now doing these RDLs as the second part of my superset, you know, after the leg curls, the load is so much lower and I actually don't feel any like low back fatigue while I'm doing them. Like I only feel it through my hamstrings and glutes, which from a bodybuilding perspective is like exactly what you want because it's a much lower fatiguing movement, right? But that thought popped in my head of like, you know, my spinal erectors are one of my better body parts for many of the reasons that you mentioned. Um, but I've, I feel like I've been able to maintain them through continuing to stiff legged deadlift heavy, which is a which is a pull off the ground um, and through RDL's heavy and stuff like that, um, but not feeling them at all doing them as the second part of the superset kind of just made me wonder whether it was something that I might see atrophy over the course of time. And it's something that I don't really want to have happen. Um, So anyways, just, yeah, very interesting.
0: Yeah, I guess to cover a little bit of recap on, you know, what's the latest with me, we are wrapping up our time here in Playa del Carmen. Um, I don't think I'm trying to think about the, the, the last episode. So last I think we talked about it, we had settled on Salt Lake City, and then we had massive issues trying to find uh an airbnb for the time we were there so we're actually going to austin texas um so we will get into austin texas uh, like the 13th the 14th of march and we'll be there through at least the end of may so it's a little life update there um, i'm excited for it i just like the change plus it's getting very very hot here so i'm excited to just get back to like more reasonable temperatures. Um, training, I am in the final two weeks of my three day per week leg training program. So it's been going really well. And I'm like, you know, it's awesome. I'm enjoying it. You know, it's definitely producing fruits of my, you know, my labor, but it's taxing. So it, it's beaten me up a little bit. So I'm excited to pull back. We're going to pull back to four days per week, nice. which is, um, going to be good for me. It'll just be, give me a little bit more flexibility, especially with being in a new place. I'm excited to just go on more walks and stuff too, and spend an extra day. Um, away from the gym. So that's kind of how, when you feel that way, it's kind of like, okay, like it's time for a deload. Like, will to train is down a little bit. Um, so it's like life training. WorkSelf just wrapped up a new launch, which was awesome. Um, Strike Nutrition Co. had a nice February, or biggest month to date. So that was nice. really, really cool. Um, it's just growing, you know, learning more, doing better stuff, producing more value, all, all about it. So that is the life kind of training and business update for me. So anything else before we get into this no, topic? Man, let's Brian? chat. Okay. So with how I want to frame this, this conversation we're going to get into is from the standpoint of repeating an exercise week after week, trying to improve reps and or increase load once you reach the kind of the upper threshold of the rep range that you have set for. Any particular episode or exercise. So within this, we're going to largely be talking about rep ranges. Um, in you know efforts of f- further facilitating the progressive overload for hypertrophy, we may kind of take a little aside to talk about strength as well. So to kind of kick this kick this off to you, Brian. At which point does an increase in weight and thus lesser subsequent reps actually provide you with um, less total work done from a tonnage perspective?
1: Yeah. Cool. So tonnage is the word I really want to kind of focus in on here. And I know that that wasn't even like the question was like, let's talk about tonnage and have a big conversation about tonnage, but we're going to do that because I think that there's a lot of value in kind of discussing why tonnage doesn't matter. And then we'll kind of work our way back to make sure that we answer the specific question that you asked. So as like a quick, just general answer to your question we do want to see tonnage going up but we don't need to see tonnage going up session to session we just want to see it going up over time so if you have the same movement for a similar amount of reps in your program three months from now we want to see that you're essentially lifting more weight for more reps than you were a couple months prior um A lot of people have this idea that tonnage needs to go up constantly. And that's what I kind of want to put to rest a little bit via um, some of this discussion. So my coach, uh, the guy I was working with for a while, Brian Miner, he has a website, myojournal.com. And uh, I'm just going to take a quote off of his website to kind of start the discussion real quick. So he says, Tonnage doesn't cause hypertrophy. It just often correlates with the requisite stress that initiates the physiological cascade that gets us jacked. The practice of equating tonnage and expecting similar outcomes in hypertrophy often misses the mark due to the fact that load and proximity to failure are the primary determinants of muscle recruitment, as mentioned earlier. Tonnage doesn't provide insight into either of those. So the the points he was saying are that proximity to failure and load are going to be the main things that we're working with here that affect hypertrophy. So essentially the amount of tonnage that you do can be affected by so many different factors. Like you could just add a set and do less reps than you did. And now you've increased your tonnage, right? You could do sets of 20 reps instead of 10 reps. And now you've also increased your tonnage, right? Um, So the idea is that we want to increase an imposed training stress over time tonnage in a long-term visual months down the road gives us proof sort of it validates that we did increase training stress but the ultimate goal on a day-to-day basis is to match a level of stress that we're trying to achieve for that day and that may or may not come with an increase in tonnage um so let's see One thing about lifters as we advance is that we become better at mind-muscle connection and better at muscle-specific execution. For this reason, being stronger often means that you need to do less volume. So if we take somebody who, call them an intermediate lifter, and they're squatting 225 pounds for sets of 10, because 225 isn't just overall a massively imposing demand, they can probably do five sets of 10 and achieve 11,250 pounds of tonnage. But as this same lifter advances, and maybe we're five years down the road, this lifter might now be doing 365 for sets of 10. But the chances are that this person cannot do five sets of 10 at 365. I mean, that would just put you under, even though you've gotten stronger, the overall physiological demand being imposed on you is that much higher. So if this person does three sets of 10 at 365, they're getting 10,950 pounds of tonnage, which is 300 pounds less than 225 for five by 10. But you can probably see how 365 for three by 10 is just going to be a much harder effort on the body. Right, Aaron, feel that?
0: Yeah, 100%. So Kind of take a step back um, from if you're viewing your progression over from like a macro cycle and you're saying, okay, if I'm looking at, you know, like a six months ago at an equal rep range and an equal amount of sets, looking at tonnage can be mm-hmm. beneficial over like a macro perspective. But in a, you know, a micro perspective, comparing week to week or even like, you know, micro cycle to micro cycle, um, strictly chasing tonnage would probably, um, be less advantageous than paying closer attention to like your rep ranges, your RIR, um, your physiological like capacity to recover, et cetera.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that was kind of the next point I was going to make is that, um, preparedness. And we've talked about this before in regards to progressive overload, but preparedness on a daily basis is a fluctuating component, right? So, It would be really cool if we could go into the gym and be like, okay, this week I'm doing 200 for 12, next week I'm doing 200 for 13, then 200 for 14, 200 for 15, and then I'm going to go to 210 and do 210 for 12, and then 13 and then 14 and 15. That would be really cool. We could just progress linearly just like that. And even within the context of that progression, which I would call progression, it hits the exact problem that you were pointing out in the beginning, which is if we do 200 pounds for 15 reps, we're getting 3,000 pounds of tonnage. But then we increase weight and we're like, cool, I got stronger. I hit the top of my rep range. Let's drop this down uh, and go to 210. Then now we're doing 210 for 12 reps, which is less than 3,000 pounds. Whatever that math is, it's less than 3,000. Right right answer. So so I think that that's like a perfect example of that. Um, And then just to make one other quick point about um, tonnage and how how it is specific to muscle is when you look at a CrossFitter, and this is even relevant to our hip hinging discussion from the beginning of the conversation – A CrossFitter is doing so much tonnage, right? You can look at like a CrossFitter's day and there's just tonnage here and then there's a midday workout and there's tonnage there and there's an evening workout and there's tonnage there. But none of that tonnage is very specific to the muscle that's being worked. So then you take someone that shifts to physique and I bet if you did a case study and looked at like a competitive CrossFitter who shifts to like a physique focused approach, they probably cut their total tonnage throughout the week into like a third or a quarter or something like that. But that tonnage becomes much more specific to the purpose that they're trying to achieve to the muscles that they're trying to work. And so it would be ridiculous if they tried to match the same amount of tonnage that they were doing. Right. Agreed. Cool. Um, So the main way that we like to track the work that we're doing is in hard sets, right? That's kind of the standard accepted nomenclature for, for hypertrophy training now is the number of hard sets that you're doing within a given rep range. Um, So I think that it's important to understand that even in the conversation of tonnage, that some people are going to work better within a lower rep range and some people are going to work better within a higher rep range, right? This can be as much physiological, like somebody might be a fast twitch fiber type and work better and respond better in like a five to eight rep range, whereas somebody might be a slower twitch dominant person and respond better in like a 15 to 20 rep range. This could also be psychological too, where somebody literally might just hate working in the 15 to 20 rep range and prefer the five to eight rep range that probably doesn't mean that that person should only work in the five to eight rep range if their physiology dictates that they should work in the 15 to 20 rep range. That's kind of a side. It probably isn't super important for the conversation. But um, what is important in regards to tonnage is that the person that's doing sets of five to eight reps is going to get way, way, way less tonnage than the person that's doing um, the, the higher rep range, right? And an example of that is even... Okay. So hold on one sec. Yeah. So the example would be, uh, somebody doing three sets of five reps with a bunch of weight versus, um, three sets of 15 reps with less weight. You're going to get more tonnage that way. I also think it's important to talk about proximity to failure in that that's one of the things that Brian minor kind of said in his quote that I used earlier was that proximity to failure is one of the key attributes to hypertrophy. So if we're beyond whatever the minimum threshold is for hypertrophy and say you're at six, seven, eight reps shy of failure, you can still accumulate a ton of tonnage. Like I could do a set of 30 reps with a hundred pounds, but leave 10 reps in the tank and I'm getting a ton and ton of tonnage, but none of that is relevant to anything because we're not even within the spectrum of what's relevant for hypertrophy. Um, so also super important to keep in mind there. Um, Greg Knuckles had a uh, podcast episode with Jeff Nippard. It was on the Jeff Nippard podcast called How Hard You Should Train. And it was one of the most like thought-provoking podcasts I've listened to recently. And one of the things that uh, that Greg Knuckles said is he goes, I don't really think it's even about RIR as much as it is a percentage of the total reps that you can achieve. So – The way that he described this was you could do a set of back squats for 20 reps with your 22 rep max. And that is just an awful set of back squats, just terrible. I mean, it will put you on the ground for the rest of the day. But if you do a set of six back squats with a weight where you could do eight, that's more like what we mean when we say take a set to two RIR, right? So he was saying that maybe the better way to think about this is that we want sets to go to about 75% of the total number of reps that we could achieve with a weight. And that that would be the amount of reps that would be stimulative for hypertrophy. So that would be that six reps with an eight rep max, which is a typical two RIR set. But maybe when we get up into the higher reps, like a 20 rep set, maybe it's not 20 rep set with a 22 rep max but it's like a 20 rep set with a 27 rep max or something like that. You know, what do you think about that?
0: Yeah, that's those, it's, it's, of course it's brilliant, <laughs> right? Cause it brings, it kind of brings together like intensity, intensity in the form of like percentage to one rep maximum or percentage to a, a rep maximum, I guess would make more, more sense in, con, you know, conjunction with RIR. So typically, you know, we've kind of find the two camps, people will say like, okay, we're going to work in, you know, percentages, intensity percentages, or we're going to work in like one, you know, RIR, RPE, and that kind of, you know, kind of bridges the gap between the two, which is, yeah, I think within, again, right, everything within the proper context is going to help provide you the best value. And this uh, definitely fits, you know, d- directly into that. So to kind of wrap up our talk about, you know, tonnage, in this first question, tonnage can get murky similar to how volume can get murky, uh, especially I, th- I think the the CrossFit uh, example was really good. You can extrapolate pull-ups over like a two hour period and just do you know a few pull-ups for a set and just like keep doing sets and sets and sets and sets. Eventually you're gonna pass your point of diminishing returns like probably pretty early on or it's not uh, proximity to failure or it's not a close enough proximity to failure to provide a more hypertrophic um, benefit in that regard when you just keep adding more junk volume on the back end. So if you are chasing tonnage in like a short-term standpoint or chasing volume purely in a short-term standpoint, you can kind of run yourself into a position where um, less definitely becomes more and you're kind of chasing the wrong rabbit per se when your goal is hypertrophy. The last thing I do want to kind of kick over to you before we move on, um, regard inside the same context here, uh, everything we basically just said mostly applied to hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. Would anything change if someone's goal, or do you think anything should change if someone's goal was more strength based?
1: So a few subtle things. Um, I do think that with strength, strength athletes, like The example of the intermediate athlete that did the 225 for multiple sets of 10 and then the 365 for less sets of 10, I think that that applies in a larger uh, frame for a power lifter because they're working at such high intensities that as they get stronger, these sets of like one, two, three reps that they're doing are just so taxing that I think that you just end up doing less total sets. Um, Like somebody who's new and is trying to get strength adaptations, they're still trying to like neurally learn the movements, right? So they might do 10 sets of two, but the percentage is lower, but they're just doing so many sets of two. But that same athlete, as they get bigger, they might be only doing like three sets of two and the weights are way, way higher, but there's just so many fewer sets that tonnage just isn't as relevant. Um, I also think that, you know, one thing that's really major when it goes to to the strength side of things is that proximity to failure isn't as important or even important at all, really. Um, like, we talked about this, I think, on a, on a prior podcast, but you can – create neural adaptations and you actually should create neural adaptations with strength work being further from failure so like that cutoff for hypertrophy that's around five rir where you want to be like you know relatively close to failure so so the loads are starting to move slower and you're starting to actually have to exert through the the target muscle etc etc these things don't apply to strength because velocity is the key to strength like you'll have people doing doubles at 55 to 60 percent and that's a weight they could probably do you know 20 times 15 times at least and they're doing doubles with it because they're just trying to enhance neural learning work on velocity and setup and execution and all of these different things so i just think there's too much variation in strength work um i think there's too many kind of extenuating circumstances to even even begin to look at it i mean you would look at it the same way that you do session to session that you do for hypertrophy where, you know, three months from now you want your doubles to be at a higher weight than they were three months earlier, but you wouldn't look at tonnage as something that's supposed to increase necessarily linearly throughout a training career.
0: Agreed. So to kind of button this one up, tonnage can be beneficial when, you know, zoomed out from a long-term perspective, it's probably not something that should get much of your attention uh, from a session to session, even week to week, month to month type of deal. Yep. Anything else to add there, Brian, For
1: we move No, on? I think that's probably the, the majority of it. Yeah, you did well.
0: Awesome. So next question we have is how to know when to move up in weight for working sets. So what I'm going to do first is kind of frame an example here. So let's say for our particular exercise, our target rep range is 12 to 15 reps. So on the low end, we want a minimum of 12 reps on a high end, we want a maximum of 15 reps. Um, If week one, we perform 15 reps on the first set, then 13 reps on the second set, and then 11 reps on the third set, so meaning we missed our minimum by one set, or sorry, by one rep on the third set. Um, For the following week, week two, Should we move up the weight by increment the the load, maybe by 2.5 pounds if possible, five pounds if possible, or should we repeat the following week? Because technically we didn't meet the minimum rep range on set three, but the first two reps or first two sets are well within that target rep range.
1: Yeah, totally. So I think the first thing to keep in mind uh, with any sort of rep range when you're talking about hypertrophy Is that as long as you're between five or six and 25 or 30, it really doesn't matter. Like, it really, really doesn't matter. Um, So when you're talking about, like, okay, my target is 12 to 15, and if you end up at, like, 10 or 11 or 17 or 18, like, that – I wouldn't even, like, give that a second thought. I would just use that as data and be like, cool, I'm either, you know, strong and I should add some weight or – Okay, I can take this bottom of the I, – I fell below the rep range, so next week I can either use less weight or I can just keep chugging along and try to add a rep. Like, I, I wouldn't overthink being outside of the rep range too much, and I would just think of it as just an expanded rep range. Okay, my rep range is 10 to 17 or something like that. Um, But regarding kind of when to increase weight, I think this is a super interesting topic, and I'm really, really glad we're talking about it. Um, because the way that I like to do this is with something called dynamic double progression. And this was also kind of coined and described by the guy, Brian Miner, who was coaching me before. Um, it was actually the main reason that I wanted to work with him because he's been kind of talking about this dynamic double progression method for a number of years. I remember listening to a podcast with him, I think in 2017, maybe it was early 2018 talking about it. Um, but essentially the idea is that every set operates on its own progression method. So when we're looking at this 15, 13, 11, and if our rep range is 12 to 15, then because that first set hit 15 reps, we would increase weight next week on just that set. And then we would keep the same weight for the 13 rep set and for the 11 rep set. So as an example here, if we had a hundred pounds and we went 15, 13, 11, then next week we would use 105 pounds for the set of 15. And maybe we get 15 reps again. If we get 15 reps again, that's great. Then the following week we would jump that up to 110. Maybe those 15 reps fall to 14 and we're like, okay, then I'll keep 105 pounds for the next week on that set. But that's only for that first set. The other two sets operate on their own spectrum. So after going up to 105 pounds for the first set, I would drop down to 100 pounds for the second set because I only got 13 reps on that set, right? And then the idea would be that we keep 100 pounds on that second set until we can work that second set up from 13 to 14 to 15 reps, at which point we would increase the weight for that set too. And then the same thing applies downstream to the set of 11 reps where we would eventually just kind of continue to try to work that up until we get to 15 again. Um, the one kind of downside to this that I've found in implementation is that sometimes it's just annoying to change the weight on the bar. Um, and it's also kind of adds like an element of, mm, distraction to the mind. Like I have to think about this and like adding weight and okay, matching reps and like these types of things. So to the other side of the spectrum, I do think that there is validity in just looking at it from like, uh, okay, I want my reps to be more or less in this 12 to 15 rep range, but it's okay if I'm a little higher or a little lower. And I'm just gonna you know, work to meet my target RIR for the week and let the reps fall wherever they do. Um, and because we know that Progressive overload is the result of adaptations that occurred prior and they're not a requirement for future adaptations that we could even just work to our target RIR for a number of weeks in a row with the same weight. And once we reach a point subjectively where we feel like, you know, okay, we have adapted to a point such that we're now – doing these weights and we're regularly week to week getting 16, 15, 14 reps and we're no longer doing like 15, 13, 11 type thing that maybe at that point we're like, okay, you know, adaptations have occurred. Our body has adapted. We now feel ready to increase the weight. And then you just increase the weight and you roll with that new weight until you reach a point where it's too easy again. And so kind of the, the way of looking at that to put it in terms of, to extrapolate it out and make it make more sense is like say you're using 225 pounds for your bench press and your goal is to hit the 12 to 15 rep range. Well, eventually you're going to reach a point where stopping at 15 seems silly. Like you do 15 and you're like, why would I stop at 15? I can do 17 or 18. And so that's your body telling you like, Hey dude, you've exceeded the rep range. Like go ahead and add some weight, you know? What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to to take this. It's it definitely doesn't seem like it's there's a straightforward like do the X and then Y and then Z type of thing. It's going to take a little bit um, more of how you feel comfort comfort wise and in um, really your level of propensity to uh, you know make these changes. The dynamic double progression is really interesting. It is it does kind of I feel like to execute well like really solid mastery of the kind of paradigm and knowing when to, you know, push and change. And it kind of requires a lot more mental work in the gym than I guess most of us are usually prepared to do. Um, but it is really, really cool. Uh, this is something that I kind of have created my own kind of subjective path on how I will, how I, on how I will progress. It's rare that I will ever progress Um, a weight after only using it once. I at least want to repeat um, a a repeat performance before I will like move up to the next rep range. So let's say using that same example, uh, 100 pounds, I was able to go, let's say I was able to go 15, 13, 13, right? All are within the rep range. Um, And let's say maybe I sandbagged that first set a little bit. I stopped at 15, even though I might maybe had 17, but what I didn't want, and this is something that I will find is, um, fairly common with myself. If I'm like, man, this first set, I feel great. And I push it too far. My second set drops off super hard. So let's say in using that same example, I get 18 reps. Well, now my second rep, my second set, I only come up on 12. I drop, you know, a full six reps from kind of pushing myself too hard and, and, you know, kind of burning out early. And then that third set, I'm like Mm -hmm. 10. So if I would have just kind of reserved myself a little bit, Uh, Everything would be within that rep range. But now because I kind of pushed too hard, I've fallen off. Another reason I think is that, you know, going back to something we briefly mentioned earlier is that kind of general preparedness for a day. I want to know, is this day that I performed really well kind of like, I don't want to say a fluke in preparedness, but am I operating at like a 98% preparedness today? Maybe I hit that perfect trifecta of incredible sleep, super high HRV in the morning, I'm fully carbohydrate compensated, I'm incredibly well hydrated, like super low stress, and everything kind of hits this perfect peak where I can just mash extra weight. And then I'm like sick, you know, I hit my rep ranges, I go up 10 pounds or five pounds next week. And then maybe the next session or whatever, I'm like not having that like crazy, you know all peak of the planets aligning with my preparedness. And now I add more weight, and I do like really, really poorly. And then I'll feel like, you know, what the hell, what did I do? Why can't I improve? And it will like kind of start this like down spiral of psychological things when really I just kind of set myself up for failure. Cause last week I was incredibly prepared. Um, and then thought that, you know, okay, week two, I'm going to be, you know, incredibly prepared again and lift more mm-hmm. weight or hit more reps. So kind of like, we'll give myself a little bit of a stopgap. I, I will, you know, require myself to, Reperform at at least an equal level before I will go up again. And that I will kind of use that. Um, what I kind of find myself then doing is on the other side, what happens when I can never match that performance again, or maybe even my reps begin to slip generally means it's time for a deload or I'm getting sick. Uh, I found as well. So
1: would yeah, that? that's an incredibly mature and forward thinking, uh, mindset to take into your training. And, uh, and I've actually, I've talked about this a lot and it's something more on the forefront of my mind, but the notion of not completing a session for it being today's session, but how is this session going to set me up for success in my future sessions? Um, and that's like a super mature perspective and something, you know, I'm constantly battling with because I tend to take a much more aggressive, proactive approach to progression, um and i have been trying to be more diligent and like you know conti- wait for the wait for the the sign from the universe that that it's time to move up in weight um because like i know in my heart and in science that i don't need to increase weight every session and that you can literally continue to spike mps to its maximum by repeating performances for I believe two to four weeks is is kind of the time frame, um, so there isn't really like an immediate need to do that. And yet, when I go into my my logbook and I and I know that I'm following this kind of dynamic double progression method, um, I know that if I've hit the top of my self determined rep range, that that means that I'm supposed to increase weight. So um, I actually really like that you shared that, and I'm really impressed that you do that. And um, and I think that I am going to try and be a little bit more thoughtful with when and how I add weight to, to certain movements when I know that I'm close to kind of maxing out that neural spectrum. Right. Um, cause there's always those times where, you know, a movement is relatively new and it would be really silly not to add weight and kind of work to that point where like you actually have to work for your gains, you know? Um, but I do, I really like that, 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 that process, man. And it kind of brings me into, um, you even alluded to it in your response, but one of the things I I was going to talk about was the idea of kind of using one of your sets within your, your spectrum of work sets as the assessment tool. And so I tend to, and I think it's, it's kind of an example of the two different styles that we have in progression in that I tend to use the first set as my progressive tool, because I'm freshest, and so I feel like it gives me the best diagnosis of whether I actually have improved or not. Um, but the downstream effect of that, as you said, is that it oftentimes leads to less productive subsequent sets. So I've been kind of messing around with the idea of, of not sandbagging the first two sets, but maybe just, you know, reaching a, a target RIR say it's one, two, or three RIR for the first two sets and then taking it to the house on the last set, maybe zero to one RIR or something like that, where that set then becomes my my kind of tool um, to use as assessment going forward. So definitely, you know, gave me some stuff to think about.
0: Yeah, uh, the the principle of the the saving a hard set or picking a hard set is very, it's interesting for me. And the reason being is I will sabotage a session from doing stuff like this sometimes, um, because especially when your rep ranges are a little bit higher, right? So like, let's talk about a perfect example, like a hack squat or, um, what would be another one? Something that's like not necessarily like form limiting, but really, how hard you just want to really push yourself so like hack squats are really good example right so let's say we're not talking about hack squats for like a set of 6 but sets of like again let's use that 12 to 15 right there's that kind of sweet balance between the weight is heavy but um it's not it's uncommon that you are going to fail from a pure not being able to move it from a from a weight perspective it's the you know Um, okay. I'm now, this set's now gone on for like 35 to 40 seconds. My heart is beating like crazy. The metabolite buildup is incredible. My legs are on fire. That is where you're going to kind of fail a rep per se when the the pain threshold just becomes too great or you, you know, you're, you're just completely spent. Um, when I push myself too hard there, I fall apart. And then if I did that on that first set, I'm probably going to quit and not even do a third set. I might get a second set, but my weights are going to drop off significantly. Or sorry, my my performance, my reps. So I kind of know like if I kind of blow my load on set one, I'm probably not even going to do a set three. My set two, I'm going to half-ass it because I feel terrible now. And from a you know a, a matching reps of the per- previous week, I'm going to come up short. So I think that when you might kind of, it, it can be, it's going to be person to person. It can be come down to... How well you know yourself, your propensity to one finish your workout if you push yourself too hard, um, and then two, like what like what is your real goal there? I like the the idea you said of pushing that third set hard and just kind of getting your first two, not doing it crazy, and then kind of letting yourself uh, swing a little bit harder on that third set. But I know for for myself, um, depending on the exercise, I guess I should say something like a, you know, if we're talking about like biceps. Yeah, you know, not a problem. But if it's like a larger muscle group or something like that, you can probably do some, I don't say like damage and like actual damage, but you can uh, make yourself feel pretty terrible.
1: Yeah, I um I posted on my story yesterday, uh, just a, a simple question, leg extensions in the eight to 10 rep range with a yes or a no. And it's been something that, you know. I was, I'm surprised at the results. So I think it's right now it's sitting around 74% of people do leg extensions in those lower rep ranges. And I was surprised by that because I feel like the general sentiment around kind of evidence-based training is that there are just certain movements that you know, shouldn't be done in lower rep ranges. And I'm not talking about doing like a six rep set of leg extensions, but, but I do generally find that the eight to 10 rep range is my preferred rep range for leg extensions, because I actually can reach what I know is muscular fatigue versus like you said, just being like a bunch of metabolite buildup and lactic acid that makes me want to quit so bad, but my legs probably could do another few reps. Um, But when I fail a set of like or when I reach fatigue in a set of eight to 10 reps, I know that it's because my quad literally cannot push that weight up to full extension anymore. So um, I do think that there is utility of using some of these lower rep ranges on these metabolite movements like that. Um, But by the same token, like your specific example is because you are doing hack squats with 12 to 15 reps right now. And you're feeling that exact misery constantly. Um, and you do have like a lower rep day too, but, um, I just think that that that's interesting when you talk about like what failure actually is and how it can be so psychological or lactate induced versus just being like the muscle itself actually reaching fatigue.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Cause right now, actually, um, perfect example I'm doing, I do leg extensions in all three of my leg days right now. One is at the eight rep range. And then my second day is in the 12 rep range. And then my third day is at 20 reps and I use different weights for it, you know, and it's been, it's a different feeling. Um, I would say the eight, I kind of just don't like doing the leg extensions that low in rep ranges. It's just because I'm kind of scared about my knees, right? I've already had Mm -hmm. knee surgery and stuff like that. And it just, it, it kind of does worry me slightly. I'd say the 12 is, is pretty good. Um, the twenties are just Mm -hmm. God awful, like absolutely God awful. Uh, the the last thing I kind of wanted to say about that, some of it has to do, I believe with like your time spent in learning how to, I don't want to say be comfortable being uncomfortable, but like learning how to deal with that discomfort. Once you get into those, like, you know, 14 to like 20 rep ranges and being able to be like, okay, it's on fire, but I have this, you know, discomfort, but I'm going to continue pushing through it. I know that This is just like a discomfort thing. The great example, you know, that kind of popped into my head is like, you know, going back to CrossFit the first time you did like Murph or something like that. And you're now like 35 minutes into a workout and you're just like a mess and you can't go anymore. But then once you've done it a couple of times or you're like more seasoned in CrossFit, you can feel absolutely terrible, but you can continue to still like push reps and, and keep moving. So I think it's a similar adaptation there just in terms of like, feeling comfortable in that position that doesn't feel great at all it's
1: an increase in work capacity right and so we we see the same thing in like physique or bodybuilding style training and like this is literally one of the main arguments that the like eric helms brian minor crew have against the rp model of like increasing volume week to week is they're basically just like you can train your body to handle more volume like you can get better at performing volume but that doesn't mean that you're necessarily increasing muscle mass you're just getting better at performing volume um so i think that's really interesting and i think it speaks to your point too that like you can train your body to to become better at clearing lactic acid so that when you get into those higher rep ranges it like doesn't hurt subjectively as bad as it did in the beginning just because your body's doing this more effectively um but that still fucking hurts like it's awful either way (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's always a really, really good stuff. It's like you create an adaptation to, you know, that feeling, but it's not like there's no kind of conclusive evidence or anything based on the the amount of research out now that that's actually more beneficial for.
1: No, there is some evidence that like sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is like a separate form of hypertrophy from myofibular, right? Where it, it can occur almost like a balloon effect in the higher rep ranges as a result of like supersets and drop sets and stuff like that. So maybe in that sense, but in the end of the day, I think that it's the muscle that you gain through the higher mechanical tension that you put on it. That's really going to be like that muscle that stays and the sarcoplasmic stuff almost feels like it's fleeting. Like if you just stopped doing high rep sets, then that hypertrophy would just like disappear. Gotcha.
0: Really interesting. So uh, anything else you have on either of these two uh, topics we talked about today, Brian? I think we covered them pretty good. I think we crushed it.
1: Um, Look at tonnage long-term. Don't worry about it on a week-to-week basis. Just make sure that your sets of 12 are more tonnage three to six months from now than your sets of 12 were three to six months prior. And uh, rep progression there's a number of different ways you can go about it, top set, final set, dynamic double progression. Um, but I think that maybe the key to the progressive meth progression method that you choose is sticking with one for at least the period of time that you're training with that approach and not jumping around being like today, I'm going to use dynamic double progression. And, Tomorrow I'm gonna to use a top set and then the next time I'm gonna use my third set as my top set and like make sure that you have some tangible way of tracking these metrics and try the different approaches over the course of a number of months where you use one so that you can decide um which approach is your preferred one.
0: Yeah, I like that about trying the different ones because I'm sure different personality, um, different psychological mm-hmm. kind of um strengths or weaknesses would lend you better or worse to one. Awesome. So awesome. This was a really cool episode, Brian. Thank you for all of your insight. And with that, guys, I'll talk to you next week. Thank you so much for listening to Eat, Train, Prosper. If you found this episode valuable, please subscribe or share us with your friends. You can find more from Aaron at StrakerNutritionCo.com and more from Brian at EvolvedTrainingSystems.com. Talk to you guys next time.